Well, I think I've uh, shared with the last two services when I was a little kid, I always used to go to church and sit in the pews and always tried to have fun, and unfortunately, I always got in trouble for it. And so I told the Lord, you know, if, you're go- if you really want me to minister the gospel, I want to make sure that I can have fun, and hopefully I won't get in any trouble for it. And so, if you're here this morning, and sometimes I realize we take life a little bit too seriously. I know there's a time to take life seriously, but sometimes we take life a little bit too seriously. And so if you fall into that category, I want to talk to you about three rednecks. Everybody say three rednecks. There were three rednecks who arrived at the pearly gates of heaven, and St. Peter told them they could enter heaven if they could answer one simple question. What is Easter? The first redneck replied, that's easy. Easter's that holiday in November, you know, when people get together and eat turkey and they're thankful. St. Peter said, wrong, looked at the second redneck and asked him the same question. What is Easter? Second redneck said, Easter's that holiday in December, you know, and people put up nice trees and exchange presents and celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. St. Peter looks at the second redneck, shakes his head and said, wrong, looks at the third redneck. What is Easter? I know what Easter is, he said. Easter is that Christian holiday that coincides with the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus and his disciples were eating at the Last Supper, and Jesus was betrayed. He was turned over to the Romans by one of his disciples. The Romans took him to be crucified. He was stabbed in the side and made to wear a crown of thorns. He was then hung on a cross with nails through his hands. Then he was buried in a nearby cave, which was sealed off by a large boulder. And as St. Peter began to smile, the third redneck continued. And every year the boulder is moved so that Jesus can come out. (laughs) You haven't even heard the punchline yet. And if he sees his shadow, there'll be six more weeks of winter. (laughs) I love it. Now, my wife is a blonde. How many of you have ever heard blonde jokes? And my wife is not the epitome of blonde. You know, she's very, very smart. She's very intelligent. So I have to do the equalizer blonde joke. And the equalizer blonde joke is this. Why are blonde jokes always one-liners? So that brunettes and men can understand them. <laughs> Let's get spiritual. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, Father, thank you for today. This is a day that you've made. We open our hearts to you and we ask you to give us ears to hear what you would say. It's far more important what you would say than what I could ever begin to say. And Father, we vow to give you all of the honor for it. We vow to give you and you alone all of the glory for it. And we vow to give you all of the praise. For that work which has begun in this house, in this city, and in these lives, and that work shall be completed. For it is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray and give you thanks. If you agree with that prayer, someone say amen. Amen. Wouldn't it be great if everybody was perfect? (laughs) Wives, wouldn't it be great if your husband was perfect? Don't say amen. Husbands, wouldn't it be great if your wives were perfect? You better not say amen. (laughs) Parents, wouldn't it be great if your children were perfect? (laughs) Children, wouldn't it be great if your parents were perfect? Wouldn't it be great if your neighbors were perfect? 
Wouldn't it be great if your neighbor's kids were perfect? Wouldn't it be great if that person sitting next to you was perfect? Wouldn't it be great if everybody else in the building was perfect? Wouldn't it be great if you were perfect? I love the story of the actor who played the part of Jesus in the Passion Play. How many of you ever heard of the Passion Play? In the Ozarks. And so he's carrying the cross, you know, towards Golgotha, and there's a heckler in the crowd. And so the heckler starts ridiculing Jesus and mocking Jesus. You know what Jesus did? Set the cross down, walked over, and punched the guy right in the face. So the director's like, you can't punch people in the face. You're playing who? Jesus. So he goes, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Well, guess who's back the next day? The heckler's back. Jesus loses it and hits him in the face again. Jesus got fired. So he goes to his director, I really need the job. I promise if this ever happens again. No, he didn't say it that way. If it ever happens again, <laughs> I promise this will never happen again. But guess who's back? The heckler's back. Jesus is carrying the cross. He's mocking him. Jesus' knuckles are turning white. His teeth are clenched. You know what Jesus did? He walked over to the man and said, I'll see you after the resurrection. <laughs> the simple fact is nobody's perfect, including those who play the part of Jesus. And according to the Scripture, the Bible says the closer we get to the end of all things, the even more perfect people are going to become. Did I give you enough time to find that 24th chapter of Matthew? Let's notice something together. I'll give you a little background. Jesus, you know, the disciples have been showing him around the temple. They, they love the temple property. They love the temple grounds. They're showing him the buildings and everything that has been built. And Jesus, in the midst of this, says, Don't you know that the day will come when not one stone will be left standing on top of another? So they come to him here in the third verse, and they say, Master, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered, verse 4, and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. You see, dear friends, you and I have the potential of being deceived. You and I have the potential of believing something and basing our lives upon something that's not true at all. And we have the potential of being influenced by another to believe and base our lives upon something that is not true at all. How many of you have ever at some point in your life you lived for something only to find out you were wrong? It was not true at all. Jesus goes on to say, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. I, I worked for six and a half years for Kenneth Hagin Ministries as a part of the crusade department. And every year we would do what was called camp meeting at the Tulsa Convention Center. And so we would set up the auditorium and do all of the, you know, behind-the-scenes responsibilities for crusades and camp meetings of that nature. And so a platform had been set up, and there were two ways to get on that platform. One was a series of steps on the front. Another was a series of steps on the back that went down underneath the seating area there at the convention center. And so we had finished out the worship portion of the service, either morning or afternoon, and uh, I was going down those back steps underneath the seating area, and security had a man in handcuffs. And they were ushering him out of the building. I mean, it couldn't have been 75 feet from the pulpit. And uh, so I went to the head of security, and I said, what's going on? 
And he said, well, this man claims he's Jesus Christ. And he demands equal time in the pulpit with Brother Hagin. See, we kind of laugh at that, but Jesus said, a lot of people are going to do this. And he said, they'll cause many to believe things that are not true at all. He goes on to say in verse 6, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. See, husbands, you can't see that your wives aren't troubled. Wives, you can't see that your husbands aren't troubled. Parents, you can't ensure that your children won't be troubled. Children, you can't ensure that your parents won't be troubled. You can't ensure your neighbors won't be troubled. You can't ensure your neighbor's children or the person sitting next to you. You can't ensure that they will not be troubled. You do not have the authority to do that, nor the command to do that. The only person in the last days you can ensure is not troubled is you. And he says, see that you are not troubled. For he said, all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. He said, nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning. There's more to happen than this. He says, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted. They shall kill you. And he says, you shall be hated of all nations for my namesake. I like, I like another translation words it this way. People from every nation will hate you because of my name. He goes on to say, and then shall many. Everybody say many. many. Be offended. He says, and then shall, you could say many, betray one another. And then he said, you can say, shall many hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. He said, and because iniquity or wickedness and sin shall multiply, or we could say, or abound or multiply too much, he said, the love of many shall wax cold. Now, the interesting thing in that passage of Scripture is that word love. It's translated, how many of you know that the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and that word translated love was translated from a Greek word, agape. Now, I know just enough about Greek to be dangerous. It's all Greek to me. That was lame, I know. But what I do know about that word agape, agape is that prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that word did not exist. They noticed something different about his followers. There was something different about his genuine disciples that they didn't have a word for, so they made one up. The Greek word agape. So based on the these particular passages of Scripture, we could say this, that Jesus himself said that at the end, things in the world and people in the world are going to literally come apart. But he also said, even amongst some, in his own family. But he goes on to say in verse 13, but he that shall endure unto the end shall be saved. In other words, I don't have to, I have a choice. Some put your hand up and say, I have a choice. Thank God we've got a choice. So I got a question for you. This, you know, 30th day of May 2010, that question would be this. What side of that word but are you on? You see, many good people are on the offended side of the but. Many other good people, you know, are on the betrayal side of the but. Many other good people, you know, are on the hatred side of the but. Many other good people, I mean, you ask them, my friend, my friends are glad I'm their friend. My neighbors are glad I'm their neighbor. But even though they're a good person, they're still on the hatred side of the butt or the deceiving side of the butt. And it's my choice. I can't make that choice for you. You can't make that choice for me. 
I can't make it for my wife. My wife can't make it for me. I can't make it for my kids. My kids can't make it for me or my neighbor or my neighbor's kids or anybody else. The person who determines what side of the butt they're on is you. But he does say, he that shall endure is the one that shall be saved. Now, the interesting thing is, when you look in Scripture, there's only one thing. Everybody say one. So this ain't complicated. There's only one thing listed in Scripture that the Bible says has the ability to endure anything. Who can tell me what it is? I'm glad you're so educated. Praise the Lord. No. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's go to that wimpy chapter in the Bible. You know that chapter that's for weenies and weaklings. <laughs> you have to, you know, you have to love me. You don't have to like me. <laughs> Notice over here, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, let's read it in the Amplified Bible, verse 7, says, Love will bear up under anything, talking about agape, and everything that comes. It's ever ready to believe the best of every person. Its hopes are fadeless under all circumstances, and it endures everything without weakening. Based on the context of Scripture, and the principles of Scripture, you could say it this way. That in the last days, only the love of God that is in you will keep you walking with God. You could say it this way. That in the last days, only the love of God in you will keep you married. You could say it this way. That in the last days, only the love of God in you will keep your family together. You could say it this way. That in the last days, only the love of God in you will keep you walking in the direction that God ordained your life to walk in. One man said it this way, the greatest message that could be preached to the body of Christ in the last days is the love walk. You couldn't have been more right. Turn with me to the book of Jude. Let's notice something over there. Jude verse 17 says, But beloved, remember. Now, you know, I've shared this in the other services, the word remember is never used to take up space in Scripture. It's always strategically placed there. It has a reason why the exhortation to remember something is there. And I've noticed this, that the particular context in which it's placed, if we don't consciously, purposely, you know, determine to remember what we're instructed to remember, the forces, pressures, and issues of life have already moved it out of you. Now, what he's saying here is this. But, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who should walk after, notice that, their own, walk after their own ungodly lust. In other words, he's saying there will be those in the last days who will walk after a direction that did not originate in heaven. He goes on to say, these be they who separate themselves. You see, dear friends, there is a vast difference between God separating you unto or from something and you merely separating yourself. He said, there will be many in the last days who will follow after a direction that did not originate in heaven. He says, and they have separated themselves. And he goes on to say, because they have allowed themselves to become sensual or sense rule. And he says they have not the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is no longer leading them. But you, beloved, thank God it doesn't have to be you. Someone say, thank God it doesn't have to be me. But you, beloved, and he tells you exactly what to do, 
building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. And then he says this, keep yourselves in the love of God. I can't keep my wife in the love of God. My wife can't keep me in the love of God. I can't keep my children in the love of God. I can't keep my neighbors or my neighbor's children or anybody else in the love of God. Sometimes I know just as a minister, you'll have a compassion or a conviction or a passion about something so great. You wish you could reach down inside yourself, take something out of you and put it in someone else and do it for them, but you can't. And the moment you try, you produce rebellion because you do not have the command or the authority to do it. The only person, dear friend, that you have the you know, command and the authority to make sure is walking in love in the last days is you. The moment you try to do this for somebody else, you will produce rebellion. Mark it down. He goes on to say, keep yourselves in the love of God, especially if you're looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 1 in that message translation says this, go after a life of love as if your life depended upon it. Because it does. Someone said this, to, to love is to see a glimpse of heaven. Someone else said in the final analysis, love is the only reflection of a person's worth. Everybody wants to be loved. Pursuit of love is everywhere. It's on TV. It's in the movies. Books written about it. Songs written about it. Internet. Seminars. It's the single greatest need of every human being. I've said for years, every human being deserves the right to be accepted just the way they are on the way to where they're going. In 1984, I took my first missions trip to Glasgow, Scotland, and what we did is we passed out tracks to the street gangs. And I met a guy named John, the epitome of the punk culture. <laughs> Tall, jet black hair, makeup all over his face, black t-shirt with a skull on it, Long black leather pants with silver chains hanging down it. Long pointed black boots 26 years ago. And I got to talking because, you know, sometimes human nature is such, and I've said this, you know, sometimes we're far more human than we ought to be. Human nature is such that many times we'll judge another person merely by externals. Right. And so I'm thinking, ah, you know, he's probably a little bit unusual. You know, I'm as human as the next fella, you know. And I thought, well, he's probably a little bit unusual. And I got to talking to him, and I thought, man, this guy's really normal. Really normal. He's more normal than me. Just kidding. <laughs> but he's just really normal. Great conversation. Great guy to talk to. And yet you're looking at him, and he just looked bizarre. But yet he was just very normal. And uh, he starts talking to me. He said, you know... He said, I'm not into drugs or sex or rock and roll or, you know, alcohol or anything like that. I looked at him and I said, John, why are you in the punk culture? Listen to what he said. I found family here. He found the single greatest need of every human being. He was accepted just the way he was on the way to where he was going. The place that was intended for the family of God. I know in 1985... I had a particular man um, came into the circle of influence that I was a part of, and the Lord spoke to my heart. And I know, I know this about the Lord. He doesn't say things for no reason. And it's kind of like Jesus didn't 
talk to see his jaw move and hear his tongue flap. He said things for a reason, an eternal reason. And so the Lord spoke to me about this man. He said, see that man right there? Yeah. He said, that man's a homosexual. I said, really? Okay. I didn't know why he told me that. I had no idea. After a process of several weeks, I got to know this gentleman. He's come around and he's talking, and after a process, oh, maybe of a month or so, he says, there's something I have to tell you. He said, I'm homosexual. I said, I know you are. He said, how do you know? I said, the Lord told me. And he described how at the age of 16, he opened himself up to a spiritual influence, and it literally came into his body. And he said the natural affections that he normally had for a woman were now turned towards a man, and he wanted out. He had his Bible and all of his Christian books and music and all that in, in a box buried in the upper corner of his closet because he didn't want his male homosexual friends to know that he was a, wanted, you know, was a Christian. So I taught him how to walk like a man because he walked funny. Taught him how to talk like a man because he talked funny. Taught him how to dress like a man because he dressed funny. Went a little too far. He started wearing lumberjack boots and flannel shirts. I said, dude. <laughs> Chill a little bit here, man. <laughs> but then he said something to me. He said, every homosexual on the face of the earth knows it's wrong. I didn't make it up. He said it to me. And what I'm about to tell you Anybody can go and read the American Medical Association journals and read anything that I'm about to tell you. That oppression in the homosexual community is off the charts, higher than any other lifestyle. Depression in the homosexual community is off the charts. Domestic violence in the homosexual community is off the charts. Drug use, alcoholism, off the charts. There are diseases in that lifestyle known only to that lifestyle. The average homosexual will not live past the age of 60. I'm told that if my son or my daughter, any of my sons or my daughter or any human being smokes cigarettes, their life expectancy will be eight years less than that of a person who does not smoke cigarettes. The life expectancy of a homosexual is 13 years less of that of a person who does not partake of that lifestyle. The average homosexual will have between 80 and 1,000 partners in their lifetime. I didn't make that up. That's all public knowledge. And there's a mission statement in the movement that says this. Our mission is to radically alter the mindset of a society. What's the goal? To be accepted. Not just the way you are on the way to where you're going, but to be accepted for what you do on the way to where you're going. Big difference. Because the mindset is, if I can just be accepted for what I do on the way to where I'm going, all the oppression will go down, all the depression will go down, the domestic violence will go down, the alcoholism will go down, the suicide rate will go down. That, dear friends, is believing something that is not true at all. I know when my wife and I, we directed a Bible school in Sweden in 1995. and One of the things that I noticed, because I was raised in, you know, rural America, uh, rural community, so I was taught to be a gentleman. You know, open the door for a lady and all those, and just being a gentleman. Well, I was warned when we moved to Sweden, you don't do that over here. And I thought, well, that's kind of odd. 
And so, you know, the, the feminism mindset, you know, there's a balance and there's an unbalance to probably anything. And uh, I just noticed that over there, I was warned, you know, if you try to open the door for a lady, she'll say, I can do it myself, thank you. And I thought, why is it so extreme over here? I mean, I'm the kind of person, I, I, like, I examine that kind of stuff. I like to understand it. Why? You know, human behavior, all the, all the, everything associated with it. Why? Why? Well, I got to looking at the culture that I grew up in is a cultureless society. We're only 200 and something years old, and it's a mixture of multiple cultures that have never truly blended into one. But over there, you have a culture over 1,000 years old, and it's radically influenced everybody who lives there. Well, I got to looking at the ancestors. They were Vikings, and these men were barbarians. They beat women. They dragged them around. They owned women. And at some point in their history, the women rebelled against that kind of treatment. Why? Because the single greatest need in every human being is to be accepted just the way you are on the way to where you're going. That need was met in Christ. We try to find it in other places. That need was met in Christ. Now... The love that I'm talking to you about. Are you so glad you came to church today? It's awfully quiet in Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> the love that I'm talking to you about this morning has nothing to do with the sexual nature, though in the marriage context, that's very important. The kind of love that I'm talking to you about this morning has nothing to do with, you know, friendship. Though in the proper context, that kind of love is very important. The kind of love I'm talking to you about this morning has nothing to do with seeing some kind of desirability in another person, though in the proper context, that kind of love is important. The kind of love that I'm talking about has nothing to do with emotional attraction, though in the proper context, that is important. The kind of love I'm talking to you about this morning has nothing to do with parental love or the affection a mother or a father has towards their child, though in the proper context, that kind of love, once again, is very important. The kind of love I'm talking to you about this morning that Jesus said is going to wax cold in the last days, it doesn't have to, but he says some will allow it to, is the kind of love that will endure personal pain while seeking the benefit of someone else. The kind of love that he says will wax cold in the last days is the kind of love that says it doesn't matter how I feel. The only thing that matters is how you feel. I'll be honest with you, dear friends, that's not easy. But it's the right thing to do. Listen to this quote by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. He said, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But he said the Good Samaritan reversed the question. He said, if I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? See, life changes instantly when you choose to look through someone else's eyes. I learned that lesson the hard way with my own father. My dad was a very destructive leader in the home. And I knew my dad, you know, the only way I could really associate with him is if I could get him to talk about the war. So I'd always ask my dad about the war. He was an upper turret gunner and, you know, on a B-24 bomber in World War II. And he was stationed in the Galapagos Islands and he came out of the war just a mess. And so all five of his kids, I being the youngest of five, all had to deal with that. Well, one day I'm listening to a conversation, you know, you ever hear somebody talking to you, what'd you say? You know, what would you say? Because it, it kind of caught you off guard. You weren't expecting to hear that. And so while these guys are talking, they're saying, they were talking about what a great guy my dad was. 
And I remember thinking, really? I just didn't know him like that. I only knew him. I only knew another side to him. I didn't know that side to him. I'm like, really? Well, then I'm listening to some other people once again. It's like, what'd you say? Relatives, you know, were talking about my dad, and they were saying how his dad died when he was four years old. It's like, what? I didn't know that. No wonder my dad was so destructive. His dad, he didn't even grow up with a dad. He didn't grow up with an example of a man in his life. He didn't grow up with an example of a husband in his life. He didn't grow up with an example, you know, of a father in his life. He ends up in the war at a young age, stationed on an island out in the middle of the Pacific. No wonder he came out such a mess. And so I determined at the age of 19, I'm going to get to know my dad. Because I didn't know him. And uh, so I wrote him a Father's Day card. It was Father's Day, you know. And I said, Dad, happy Father's Day. Just want you to know you're the greatest dad in the whole world. I love you. And I want you to know if there was any other man in this world that I'd want to be my dad, I'd want it to be you. Blew, blew my dad away. He couldn't handle that kind of acceptance, even from his own son. And I realized... I want to have a relationship with this man, but he does not know how to have a relationship with me, his own son. And if I'm going to get to know him, guess what? I'm the one who's going to have to do something about it because he does not know how. See, sometimes we're far more human than we ought to be. I've got an 8-year-old son and a 15-year-old son and a 16-year-old daughter. What would you think if I required my 8-year-old son to know the same things my 15-year-old son does? Wouldn't you think that's not fair? Thank you for those three yeses. And, uh, I mean, seriously, wouldn't you think that's not fair? Yeah. Absolutely. And yet we do that to people in relationships all the time. We require things out of them that they don't even have the knowledge to give us. And then human nature will judge it and separate from it. Well, if, if we're going to say that's not fair in the context of a child, I'd have to say that's not fair in the context of any relationship. Amen? Amen. So I uh, spent some time with him. Spent two years with my dad. I got to know my dad on a level I would have never known had I not taken the initiative at the age of 19 and recognized he doesn't know how to give this to me. He doesn't know how to be a dad. His dad died when he was four. He grew up without a dad. And here I'm judging him because he doesn't know how to be a dad? I'm not fair. Right? Notice with me something in Ephesians chapter 3. We're headed somewhere. I've got 10 minutes. Who give me 10 minutes? <laughs> 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. I got about 110 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Notice Ephesians. We know these as the uh, Ephesian prayers. You know, if you've, if you've studied, you know, typically many people will, will look at these as the Ephesian prayers. And, and they are that. But what I want you to see is what the Apostle Paul is actually saying here. He said, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father. He's on his face, on his knees before God, praying for you and praying for me. Why? Go through the context and go to verse 19 and notice what he says. That you might know the love of Christ, the agape of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Listen to me. 
The Apostle Paul is on his knees praying for you and for me that we would not only comprehend but fully experience this love that came from heaven that will never be understood in this world. It is a love that's based on what you can do. Only. Never based on what you can receive. Notice with me Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, But God commendeth, in the King James translation, better way would be to say it, He demonstrated it. Or He made clear what it really looked like. He made clear His love or His agape toward us in that while we were yet sinners, He died. His love was based on what He could do for humanity. Are you listening to me? He not only looked down from heaven, but he came down from heaven and endured personal pain while seeking our benefit. Have you ever thought, because sometimes, you know, I'll read the Bible and I'll always think out of the box, I guess you would. And so I'll see Jesus responding a certain way or Paul responding a certain way, and I'll think, why did they do that? And so I'll look at Jesus and I'll think, how did he love like that? And you ever think like I do? How, how do you do that? I mean, because here's Peter, you know, he denies him three times. Not once, not twice. Three times. You ever been denied by somebody? And I'm looking at Jesus and it's like, he's not even moved by it. Peter, do you love me? Well, feed my sheep. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. Peter, do you love me? Well, feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep thinking, how do you love like that? Or the woman at the well of Samaria, remember her? I mean, it's not that, they're not amazed that he's talking to a woman, they're amazed that he's talking to that woman. He goes, woman, where's your husband? She said, I, I have none, Lord. He said, you're correct. He said, you've actually had five. And he said, the one you're with now is not your husband. See, human nature, sometimes being far more human than it ought to be, will many times judge the failures, relational failures in another human being. Jesus isn't even moved by it. He's not even phased by it. Matter of fact, he uses that lady to reach all of Samaria. Or what about the woman caught in the act of adultery, thrown in the midst of that circle, they've all got rocks, the law demand, <laughs> you know, stone, <laughs> he just bends over and starts writing in the sand. Dear Father, how long do I got to be with these crazy people? <laughs> no, I don't know if he said that. <laughs> Dear Father, I can't say nothing. <laughs> Finally, everybody drops the rocks and walks away. And he goes, woman, where are your accusers? She says, there are none, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Yet many times... Our human nature, being far more human than it ought to be, will judge the failures in another human being. When many times they don't even have the knowledge not to even think that way. Because their background was such, they don't know any different. Are you here this morning? Are you still glad you're in church today? Yeah. I'm glad I can get better, aren't you? Yeah. What about Zacchaeus? Was a wee little man, a wee little man was he... I mean, this guy's nuts. He's absolutely nuts. 
How do you know he? He ripped people off, okay, on purpose. I don't think he had any friends, and the Bible doesn't say he had any friends. And here Jesus comes by, and he looks like he goes, "Hey, Zacchaeus, we're going to your house today." He looked at life through Zacchaeus's eyes and saw something different than anyone else had ever seen. He said, "We're going to your house today." He said, salvation has come to this house. How do you love like that? How do you hang suspended between heaven and earth looking out at the very people who brutally, you know, mutilated your body and hung you up there and look through their eyes and have the presence to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How do you love like that? How do you hang there? You got a a thief on one, two thieves, you know, one guy's looking at you, mocking you. You're just trying to stay alive. And the other guy says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. How do you, how do you love like that? You know the answer is so simple? You'll go, wow, I could add a V8. <laughs> it's that simple. Do you know why Jesus could love so much? Because he believed everything his father said. Do you realize that the more you believe what the Father has said in this book, the more you can walk in love? Do you know that Jesus believes what his Father said so much that there is nothing you could ever do that has the ability to turn his love to hate? He believes what his Father says so much You can ridicule him, mock him, beat him, beat people who love him, who follow him, make up stories, create lies. You don't even have the strength in any action you could ever do to turn his love to hate. That is awesome news. Notice with me Romans chapter 8 and verse 38. Because like Paul the Apostle said, the world can't understand this. You can only accept this. Notice here, Romans chapter 8 and verse 38, For I am persuaded, what are you persuaded of, Paul? That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. Someone else said it this way, love is the identifying mark of a Christian. In a world filled with hate, envy, and anger, it is love that sticks out like a healthy thumb. John G. Lake was asked, about his ministry because he would go out into the bush country in Africa and see miracles. He said, my eyes have beheld things the eyes of man have not seen for 2,000 years. And he would come back to the camp and such jealousy would arise in the camp he wouldn't even talk about it anymore. He just kept his mouth quiet. His people got so jealous of the things that were happening under his ministry. So he just got quiet. And then he made this statement, if all there is to the Christian life is miracles, I don't want it. He said, for I want my spirit and my soul, and my body to be like Him. That'll change your life.
Let me ask you a question. You think God might want us to love like that? Think things might be a wee bit different? Wee bit. <laughs> I've said it this way. Can you have too much of God in your life? Can you love too much? Can you be too kind? Can you be too merciful? Can you be too compassionate? Can you be too forgiving? Let's look at the other side of that coin. Can you not have as much of God in your life as you should? Can you not pray as much as you should? Maybe not be as kind as you should? Maybe not be as compassionate as you should? Maybe not be as forgiving as you should? So you can't have too much of God in your life. No wonder the Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I don't have anything to be ashamed of. You can't have too much of this. And so you realize that the more you give yourself to these things, the result is always good. Matter of fact, Paul said to the church at Ephesus, it will cause you to be filled with all the fullness of God. Wow. Ernest Hackle said this. He said, the three hardest tasks in the world are not physical, they're moral. In other words, the three hardest things any human being could ever do in this life are not physical things, they're moral things. He said, the third most difficult thing any human being can ever do is to say, I am wrong. He said, the second most difficult thing any human being can ever do is to include somebody in something who has already been excluded by someone else. But he said, the single most difficult task any human being can ever do in this life is to return love for hate. I had a situation a number of years ago. I had first accepted Christ. Remember, I, I got to 